Unleavened Bread Ministries presents from your hands, your feet, your side. Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels. Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. God, we thank you so much, Father. We ask you to anoint us today, Lord, to get this revelation out to your people. And uh, we thank you so much. In Jesus' name. Okay, we're going to continue with Christian maturity number two. And I want to share some more with you about manifesting our Son. That's S-U-N slash S-O-N, glory. We're all sons of God through faith, and faith is accounted as righteousness until righteousness is manifested. That's the great thing. We have such a good relationship with the Lord because of that, okay? Uh, Galatians 3 and 26 says, For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. There can be neither Jew nor Greek. There can be neither bond nor free. There can be no male and female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, we begin our life as children who are sons by faith. And the Bible says that we come into the manifestation of sonship. Uh, Proverbs 29 and 21 says, He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become a son at the last. So that's the ultimate, right? Manifesting our sonship. Who is Jesus Christ? And Galatians 4 and 6, And because you are sons, that is by faith, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the Spirit of the Son is our born-again Spirit. So that thou art no longer a bondservant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Again, this is speaking that we are sons of God through faith, which calleth the things that are not as though they were, right? Romans 4 and 17. God sent the Spirit of His Son into us in order to bring us uh, to this adoption of sons. And the word adoption used here is not adoption of children. It is huyothesia, and it means son-placing. So according to the term adoption, we don't adopt children. We adopt sons. Uh, Beloved, now are we children. That's technon. That's not huios, right? Technon, children of God. And it's not yet made manifest what we shall be, 1 John 3 and 2. It should never be translated son because the word technon is children and we have yet come yet to come to the place that God calls us the manifest sons, right? That means 
not by faith, but by manifestation. Well, notice that God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts in order to bring us to adoption. Now, what is the Spirit of the Son? And let me point something out to you. Romans 8 and 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. But if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So notice that. Uh, people need the Holy Spirit, you know, to be walking in the Spirit. Two spirits are manifesting here, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. He even puts a but in there so that we will know he's talking about two different things here. Not everyone has the Spirit of God, but everyone who is born again has the Spirit of Christ. Jesus told his disciples, the words that I have spoken unto you are spirit, John six sixty three. These words came out of him and were cre creating his spirit in his disciples. And he told them, Already you are clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you, John 15 and 3. What did that mean? It meant that they had a new spirit because Jesus spoke those words into them and his spirit was recreated in them. Of course, the Holy Spirit's job is to recreate Christ in us, his spirit, his soul, and his body. Yeah. So the spirit of Christ is the born-again spirit. This is the Spirit of the Son, which is to bring us to adoption, the adoption of sons. The Spirit of Christ is the first thing that you receive. Next, you need the soul of Christ, and then ultimately a body like unto his body. A born-again spirit, a born-again soul, and a born-again body are the three stages of this adoption. Notice the warning, <clears throat> Romans 8 and 9, But if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have a born-again spirit, you do not belong to him. You have to be born into the kingdom. It doesn't matter how good you are either. <laughs> Number 10. Okay, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, but, and here it is again, he's switching back, right? But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you, that's the Holy Spirit, he that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwelleth in you. Notice mortal bodies. He gives life to your mortal bodies. So Paul is talking about receiving the Holy Spirit, and when you get born again, you don't necessarily receive the Holy Spirit, contrary to popular opinion. Uh, sometimes that happens afterwards. Quite often, most often, it ha happens afterwards. But you do get uh, the Spirit of Christ because you believe the Word of God, and you accept that He died for you, and He gave you His life. So these are the two steps that every Christian ought to go through, receiving the Spirit of Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. That was uh, commanded, but today most Christians don't do that. They don't obey. 
and they don't search the scriptures to see what receiving the Holy Spirit looks like <laughs> or feels like, right? So you need the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will empower you to walk in the steps of Jesus. As Jesus was both human and divine, he had a born-again spirit, and you need a born-again human spirit. You need that for the communication and for the access to the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell in your Holy of Holies, which is your born-again spirit. He comes to rule in your Holy of Holies. So you who are born again need to invite the Holy Spirit to come with all the signs and wonders that the Bible talks about. That's part of it. Acts 1 and 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. If you don't have the power to do the works of Jesus, then this is the problem. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. They would be a witness of Christ wherever they went because the Holy Spirit was in them. Yes. Romans 8 and 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So not, not led by their mind anymore, their rules and regulations anymore, their church anymore. They're ruled by the Spirit of God which is the Holy Spirit. So God gives us first the Spirit of Christ, then the Holy Spirit, so that we can hear His voice and follow Him whithersoever He goeth. Quote, unquote. For you received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. That's huio, that's son, thesia, meaning son placing. Son placing. So we're coming to that place. God manifests His perfection in us, spirit and then soul. And then ultimately, if you have borne fruit in the soul, you will receive a new body like unto His body. And I'll explain the two stages of that later. Uh, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, adoption, son placing. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So when you're first born again, that's what you are, a child of God, manifestly. But by faith, you are a son of God, which is higher. So even after you have the spirit of adoption, which according to Galatians chapter 4 is the spirit of His Son, Jesus Christ, you are a son of God by faith. And since faith is accounted as righteousness, we receive the end from the beginning. We call the things that be not as though they were, because by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Yes, the offering is there. The placement is, uh, is there in heavenly places, and it's just waiting for you to manifest it, right? Hebrews 10 and 14. So by accepting this, we are walking from the place of being children of God to the place of being sons of God. And if you want to know what a son of God is, you have to look at Jesus. <laughs> That's what a son of God is. Christ in you, the hope of glory, quote unquote. So Christ is coming to live in us, first spirit, then soul, which is your nature, your character, your authority, and so forth. 
And then ultimately you will have a body like his body. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, Romans 8 and 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So we're suffering the death of self in order to have the life of Christ. Now, if we're joint heirs with Christ of his glory, which we are, it's another way of talking about perfection. Uh, Glory is just another way of saying Christ in you. The glory is the shining forth from you of the life of Christ, that we may also be glorified with him, quote-unquote. We're uh, joint heirs with Christ, having received the spirit of adoption, and although we're uh, manifestly children, we are seeking this glory of God to come and dwell in us. But it says, quote, if so be that we suffer with him, unquote. See, part of this is knowledge because you have to exercise faith. And uh, part of this is cooperation in giving up our old life in order to gain our new life. And both of these are necessary for sonship. Both of these are necessary to have the glory of God in you. 2 Corinthians 4 and 16 says, Wherefore we faint not, but though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man's renewed day by day. So, as the carnal man is dying off, we manifest our death, burial, and resurrection, and the spiritual man is coming to life. For our, our light affliction, it says in verse 17, Notice he calls it a light affliction, which is for the moment, meaning uh, this very short time that we have to go through to be perfected, right? Worketh for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. So we call the things that be not as though they were, right? This means that we call the things that be not as though they were, were. okay, old things have passed away, all things have become new, right? So, So that's what God has taught us to do, and that's what faith is. You claim to be a son of God, and you know, you, you know now that the son of God is Jesus Christ, of course, and verse 18 says, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So you're claiming the things that you don't yet see. That's what faith is, okay? And that is eternal. It's eternal life. We have to hold fast to and believe uh, and see the things that are not as though they were. And as we're doing this, while we're walking by faith and giving up our life, this is working for us more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory, Paul says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. If you don't want to suffer the death of self, uh, then you're not going there. Okay, that's Romans eight seventeen. 
the manifestation of our sonship is being glorified with him as we suffer the death of self. God's people are glorified in this life. Verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to usward. So the suffering is not even comparable to the new life that we receive, this new new glory that we receive by going through this suffering uh, is, is the death of self. And however we don't enter into this new life uh, with glory, Romans 3 and 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation or a covering through faith in His blood to show His righteousness because of the passing over of the sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God. So He passes over your sins waiting for you to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man like Jesus did, right? So we don't start uh, into this with the glory of God. We accept it by faith, and we're justified freely because of that faith and the life of Jesus that was given to us at the cross. We were crucified with him, and we were given his life, and there was an exchange made. An old life was put upon that cross, and he gave us his new life. Galatians 2 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Good confession. And it is no longer I that live. Good confession. But Christ liveth in me. And that life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith. The faith which is in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we accept that by faith. We accept all of this by faith. Now God says that faith is accounted as righteousness. So we are imputed as sons of God through our faith. If you continue to walk by faith, you're always going to receive the manifestation of what you've been believing for. He's going to manifest His Son in you. So this is a progressive thing. You don't get anything instantaneously in the kingdom except by faith. By faith, you accept everything as instantaneous. Hebrews 10 and 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So it's accomplished. Your position is accomplished. Not your manifestation, but your position. He perfected us at the cross. We accept the whole free gift of sonship, of the life of God. Uh, of the purity and of the holiness and of the total redemption that he has given unto us. So let's look at these verses again, Romans 8 and 18. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to usward. For the earnest expectation of the creation or the creature, that's us, waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, I know uh, some people would like to put that way off in the by-and-by so that they can live any way they want to live down here. But if you're not manifesting fruit 
uh, Jesus said that you aren't going to get there. What's fruit? It's Jesus Christ. It's also His glory manifested in you. The whole creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God, quote-unquote. And that's down here, not just up in heaven, as some people say, which is a real terrible error and causes people to sit down and not seek to cooperate with God in this process. So down here is where we need the glory of God. Jesus walked in the glory of God, and when he came, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light. Matthew 4 and 16. And when Jesus came, he set the captives free. He opened the prison to them that were bound. He healed the sick. He cast out demons, and on and on. And he said we would do the same thing if we were believers. These signs will accompany them that believe. Okay. You don't have to, you can't tell what is uh, this manifestation of Christ. He tells you what is the manifestation of Christ. He said, the works that he did shall you do also. So pay attention. You're in a dead church if you don't believe this. So he cast out demons and on and on. He was the body of Christ. He left in order to come back in the corporate body of Christ so he could touch the whole world. The glory of God is needed now, and it's needed here. This is what it, this passage is talking about. The manifestation, the revealing of the sons of God. Um, has to do with manifesting sonship down here in spirit and in soul and with a physical body that is no longer under the curse. This is the ultimate end of it, by the way. So we're mani- this is how we manifest Him, you know, in spirit and in soul, and there's no curse upon the person who is manifesting Him in spirit and soul. So there's no curse on that body either, and I'll explain that a little more later. So we know that Jesus' body was the Son of Man, but one who dwelt in that body was the Son of God. Romans 1 and 3. Concerning his Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Yes, it came through Mary. His flesh came through Mary. The seed of the woman, the Bible says. Who was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. So, in his flesh, he was son of man, and in his uh, born-again spirit man, he was son of God. So, we see that Jesus was made in all things like unto his brethren, Hebrews 2.17. You should meditate on that. And the whole of creation is waiting because the creation itself fell under the curse when man fell under the curse. And only when man comes out from under the curse is the creation delivered. When Jesus came, he was the one who lived out from under the curse. And he set the creation free all around him. Well, you know, even though he was out from under the curse, he bore the curse for us so that we don't have to bear it. Hmm. Romans 8 and 20 For the creation was subject to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it, 
Uh, God subjected us to vanity. This is how sons are created, by being subject to vanity, and yet choosing the good and understanding grace. Because unless you've been a sinner, you can't understand grace. Even the angels don't understand grace. They desire to look into these things, the Bible says, First Peter 1 and 12. So, we're a fallen and we, appropriate, we appreciate God very much because we've been fallen. We appreciate that. He is lifting us up and setting our feet on the rock uh, because it's grace. It's unmerited. We can't earn it. Uh, we appreciate it, and we love him for it. Luke 7 and 40, Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Teacher, say on. A certain lender had two debtors. The one owed 500 shillings and the other 50. Uh, When they had not wherewith to pay, he forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will he love the most? Or will love him the most, excuse me. Uh, Simon answered and said, He, I suppose, to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. So, you know, he's forgiven you all of your sins so that you can love him. And you know it's only grace he's given to you. So sinners appreciate God. They love God. So there was a reason for the creation to be subject to vanity. Some people may not believe that. But Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Why would we have needed a sacrifice slain from the foundation of the world before Adam ever sinned? Stop and think about that. God went ahead with this process because he wanted sinners saved by grace. Mm. So the creation was subject to vanity for a purpose. Romans 8 and 21 that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. So this is the plan. Fallen man gets saved and appreciates it so much that we love God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only so, but ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for our adoption. And that is son placing. To wit, the redemption of our body. We're waiting for the manifestation of our adoption. The redemption, the ultimate part of it is the redemption of our body. We'll talk about that too. So this manifestation is not going to be complete until you are totally God's possession, spirit, soul, and body. But there is a way that it's complete while you're on the earth, and that is in your spirit and soul. Uh, The ultimate fulfillment, of course, is the body. As he goes on to say, to wit, the redemption of our body. That's the fullness of adoption. So, adoption of the body is in two stages. First, for those who have manifested Jesus in spirit and soul, their physical body is not under the curse. That's right. 
And the second stage is when they receive their spiritual body, when their work on earth is done. So you see, there is a way that this body is restored, and there is a way, of course, uh, afterwards that you get a spiritual body like his, his spiritual body is now. Okay? So, for in hope uh, were we saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopeth for that which he seeth? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So we're waiting for that manifestation of sonship. We don't see it yet, but we do hope, and we do wait for it, and we do walk by faith for it. Hope is a firm expectation, quote-unquote. It's not hoping for something that you think you will never see. It's hoping for something you believe is coming. And those who believe they are going to walk in the glory of God firmly expect that God will keep his promise to us and that he will finish the good work he has started in us. We will be complete. We will be perfect, as he said. Not everybody manifests perfection on this earth, that's for sure, obviously, because a lot of them been lied to and sat in dead churches and didn't expect anything from God. Okay, uh, and they don't have the same position as sons of God in heaven. There are many people today, Christians and Jews alike, who don't understand that the old covenant was done away in Christ, Second Corinthians 3 and 14. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, it's old covenant because it passed away, uh, the same veil remaineth it not being revealed to them that it is done away in Christ. So you see the legalists that snatch you back under the law are separating you from Christ, as the Bible says. So they have a veil on. They don't know it passed away. Well, when you say Old Covenant and New Covenant, you would consider that the first one is old and nigh unto passing away, like the Bible says. But no, they don't believe that. So many Christians have a veil on because they're still under the law. They're either under the law of men or they're under the law of the old covenant. They don't understand that God made a new covenant making the first one old. That's a quote. 15. But unto this day, whensoever Moses is read, a veil lieth upon their heart. But whensoever it shall turn to the Lord... The veil is taken away. So turn to the Lord. Grasp your covenant, right? So we see that when you turn to the Lord, the blindness that the devil puts on all of mankind is broken from you. Even as a Christian, if you turn to the Lord, God will break the veil off of your spiritual eyes. No matter what kind of legalism you're under, no matter what following of your own mind you're under, God will break that off of you and you'll be able to follow the Spirit of God. That's why you read the Scriptures, to find out these things that are clearly written in the Scriptures. Okay. 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Yes, He sets you free. And this is freedom. That's why a lot of these people don't want you to be free, and they don't want you to know about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. 
This is freedom, freedom from bondage, freedom from the law, because you naturally fulfill the law. So we're looking at the in the mirror and seeing Jesus by faith so that God will take that faith, which is the substance of the thing hoped for, and bring it to pass. And also notice that he calls it the glory of the Lord, quote-unquote. So we're, we're going to discover what this glory is and that it's in this life that you get this glory. But we all with an unveiled face, verse 18, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image. Where? Here. From glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. Yes, this makes some people tremble. But as we will see, it's true. As we accept that we no longer live and that the one who looks in this mirror is now Jesus Christ, who now lives in us, we're changed from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. So what glory is he talking about? The three glories mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 and 41 are star, moon, and sun glory. These are the stages of Christian growth. God offers to his saints three heavenly bodies. He calls them star, moon, and sun glory. We start out as a star glory because we have self-righteousness. The glory that comes forth from stars separates them. They're different. They're distinct from one another. They each one have their own glory, right? That's the first stage of Christian growth. We have our own glory, self-righteousness. The second stage of Christian growth is moon glory because the moon is one. And we become one through death in Christ, according to Romans 6, right? So the Bible says that we become united with him in the likeness of his death. So the moon is dead, right? It's one and it's dead. So that's the second stage of Christian growth. And it has no light of its own. It only reflects the light of the sun. Ah, okay, so that's exactly where you are when you're moon glory, okay? So uh, we who have moon glory shall also be of the resurrection, which is sun glory. We're going from our own righteousness through death to self and resurrection life of Christ in us. These are the three stages, and we grow into His glory from glory to glory as from the Lord the Spirit. Well, notice that that glory is the uh, brilliance that shines forth from us, the light of Christ's life. It's the glory of the Lord. They saw a great light uh, in the shadow of death, didn't they? Yes, and it was Jesus. And they will see that again on this earth very soon because God's planning on lighting that light again. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled in them that perish. This gospel we're talking about right now is veiled in a lot of religious people. Hmm. Literally, it says, are perishing. 
it is veiled in them that are perishing. And if you don't have the revelation of Christ in you, you are perishing. This revelation of Christ coming to life in you is the same Jesus who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. Not another Jesus, not a weak and a worthless Jesus, right? Who sits up on a cloud and does nothing for anybody and doesn't heal the sick anymore. He doesn't cast out devils anymore. On and on. If you have that Jesus, you're in a mausoleum. <laughs> Um, no, this is the real Jesus. This is the glory God that God is resurrecting in His people in these days. Second Corinthians 4 and 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in them that perish, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Well, notice, it's, the, it's some people called Christians that are blinded, Right? They don't know. The old covenant passed away. It mentions in there too. Uh, they don't know that you look in the mirror and you see Jesus. You accept that he lives in you now and you don't live anymore. They don't know these things. These things are the gospel. So, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Uh, yeah, it doesn't dawn upon them. So notice that this glory of Christ is a light, not in a physical world, but in the spiritual world. It's a light that shines forth. Verse 4, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. Devil's trying to blind your eyes. He, I mean, you know, he doesn't want you to understand these things, but it's clearly written. The devil doesn't want Christ in you or sonship or the glory of the Son manifested in you because then you're a threat to him. We need to obtain this glory, which is kingdom glory. The people who walk in the kingdom walk in this glory. And now we all may be walking into it in a certain percentage, but... Jesus wants us to fully manifest that glory 30, 60, and 100-fold. He offers us 100-fold. We need to believe Him and take Him at His word. He goes on to say, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Seeing it is God that said, Light shall shine out of darkness... So this is the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. This is a spiritual light that's in you. God opens the eyes of some people to see this light. I've known people who have seen it on me and other Christians and who walk in the light of God. So so they've uh, told me so, you know. I saw this light, this halo, one guy told me, he called it, around you, you know. And he was a lost person. <laughs> so there is a, a light seen in the spirit realm. Light shall shine out of darkness is the light of the glory of God manifesting in our old life. Your soul, uh, that outer man that's decaying day by day so that the inner man may be renewed. Verse 6, 
seeing it is God that said, light shall shine out of darkness. So can you say it won't happen? Some people do. But it's God that said it, who shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you're not looking at your natural face in the mirror anymore. You're accepting that now Jesus lives in you. You're seeing His face in the mirror by faith. He is in you. It's only those of you who accept that His righteousness is now yours that you don't live any longer. So that's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not something that you can do. It's something that you can believe God to do, and He will do it. We're told that God Himself is the Father of glory, Ephesians 1 and 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So He's the Father of Jesus and the Father of glory because Jesus is the glory, and Christ in you is the glory. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Good prayer right there. This is a good prayer. He can do it. He'll do anything that you need to give to you this gift. But first, we need the revelation of what God has given unto us already. And that's why we study this, to have that wisdom of knowledge. So we see He's the Father of glory. He's the Father of the Son. <laughs> he's the Father of Sonship. And He's the Father of the spiritual man in you, which is the, the glory of the Son. And this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1 and 27. To whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of Jesus Christ is coming to be manifested, that is, sonship, uh, being manifested in his people. And it's progressive, but we receive it by faith at the beginning. So, going back to Second Corinthians 4 and 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This is the treasure of the glory of God that needs to continue to grow in us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Well, we have this treasure of the Word being manifested in God's people, and the Word is also that light that shines out of darkness. So Second Peter 1 and 19 says, And we have the word of prophecy made more sure. We know that to be of the word of God, right? Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So look, that's the end of this, right? This is what it's going to end up like. The day star rises in your heart. This lamp is the shining forth of the light. The Bible says of this lamp shining in a dark place, quote unquote, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, Proverbs 20 and 27. 
So the dark place is your old man that's keeping this hidden. You must be broken so that the light can come forth. And as unto a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Day star is an archaic term uh, that was used for the sun. The light is shining in this dark place until the day dawns and the sun arises in you and shines forth from your heart. So Second Peter 1 and 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation, for no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but by men spake from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. So we have a more sure word of prophecy. It's the Word of God. All of the Word of God is prophecy, and it's powerful to come to pass if we believe it. We have to hold diligently to it to believe it. We're seeing that the Father uh, is the Father of glory and that the Word, which is also Jesus Christ, is the Son of the Father and is also that glory. So we have this treasure of the Word, of the Son, of the glory in us by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of adoption that brings us to the adoption of sons. The Spirit of the Son is to take us over, just as the devil seeks to take us over. The Spirit of the Son seeks to bring forth His glory in us, as Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 4 and 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves, meaning that we have a weak vessel that's not able to walk in the glory of God, but the power that God's uh, is that spirit and dwells in us. So we are pressed on every side, yet not straightened, perplexed, yet not unto despair, pursued, yet not forsaken, smitten down, yet not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life also of Jesus, uh, that's the glory that is the life of Jesus, is the Word of God, and it is born of the Father. Uh, and it says that that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our body, manifested in this body, which will then not be under the curse. You, you understand when Jesus is manifested in your spirit, soul, and body, you are not under the curse. This is God's plan. You get the glory here by looking in the mirror now with an unveiled face, now. The word manifested means to cause to shine, to make visible in our body. Phaniru in Greek means to cause to shine. The very word manifestation is talking about the shining of the glory inside of you. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, so that the life also of Jesus there it is again, the life of that glory lives in us, so that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Oh, they tell me we don't get this till we go to heaven. But God says, no, they're lying to you. Here is where you manifest Jesus. 
And to whatever state you come to, star glory, moon glory, or sun glory, that's what kind of a body you're going to have in heaven. So, again the word here, faniru, to cause to shine, to become visible. Where? In our mortal flesh. The Son of God is being birthed in us in this physical life. That's the manifestation of sonship in spirit and in soul. The person who has walked in the manifestation of sonship in spirit and soul will ultimately have the manifestation of sonship in their body. That's the fullness of adoption. That's the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, quote-unquote, shining forth out of us. And also in Colossians 3 and 3, For you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You need to remember that you don't have a problem with sin anymore. You died. The old man died. The old sinner doesn't live anymore by faith. Christ is our life. Verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested, then shall ye also with him be manifested in glory. So the very life inside of us is Christ growing in us, just like Mary had Christ growing in her. And Jesus said, For whosoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Every one of us is, uh, is pregnant with Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 and 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested, that is, caused to shine, then shall you also with him be manifested in glory. That's when the baby is born and everybody sees it. So as Christ is manifested in us, the glory is manifested in us because he is the glory and the Father is the Father of glory and everything that's born of the Father is glory. So the glory that's shining forth from that's manifested in glory of the star, moon, and sun glory, ultimately sun glory, uh, shining forth from God's people. So uh, John calls us children by manifestation because that's what we are until we manifest his sonship. First John two twenty eight, And now my little children abide in him that if he shall be manifested meaning in us, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, what is it to abide in him? He tells us, if that which you heard from the beginning abide in you, you also shall abide in the Son. Okay, so we need to let the word, the real true word of God, which is the seed of God, which bears the fruit of God, according to the parable of the sower. And he says, uh, Notice he did say, um, if he shall be manifested in the original. That's what it says. And all the ancient manuscripts say the same. It doesn't say when he shall be manifested. We'll talk about that in just a second. If he shall be manifested. So if that which you heard from the beginning abide in you, you shall abide in the Son. So what did we hear from the beginning? The truth. Not necessarily what we hear nowadays, but what we heard from the beginning. Uh, if that abides in you, you abide in the Son. Go back and read your Bible. If you're in a dead church, go home, read your Bible. 
You will grow very fast when you do that. And it clearly says, He that says he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. How did he walk? Well, he walked to his cross, for one thing. Uh, He walked in righteousness, for another thing. And he walked by faith, for another thing. So he says in 1 John 2 and 28, And now, my little children, abide in him that if he shall be manifested. Faniru, shine forth. The word is if, not when. Some versions say when because they thought it was talking about the physical coming of the Lord. And it's not. It's talking about him coming in us. When he shall be manifested, they changed it. But none of the ancient manuscripts or the numerics say when. They say if. It's not talking about the physical coming of the Lord. It's talking about his coming in you. Watch carefully. Verse 28. And now, my little children, abide in him that if he shall be manifested, there it is again, cause to shine uh, or become visible in you, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So what's going to cause you to not be ashamed before Christ? Except him living in you. The word there is manifested. Just like everywhere else, it's faniru, cause to shine. And the second word used here, uh, in his coming, you know, at his coming, refers to the physical coming of Christ. And the first one is his coming in you. The second one is his coming for you. Now, doesn't that make sense? Do you want him to come for you when he's not in you? Well, no. So if the translation you see is when he shall appear and coming, then you see him coming twice there in the same verse. It doesn't have anything to do with that, and that's nonsense. It has to do with him coming in you and then coming for you. The perusia, the second word used here in uh, at his coming, means he's coming for the ones in whom he is funny rude. That's right. The ones he's shining forth. No one hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven. Ooh. Oh. So he has become manifest. They have manifested 30, 60, or 100-fold of their sonship and of the glory of God. That's what he's talking about. Uh, this is awesome. And if you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone also that doeth righteousness is begotten of him. The one in you who is coming forth that doeth righteousness, that one is born of him. 1 John 3 and 2. Beloved, now are we the children, Tekron, not sons, the children of God, and it's not yet made manifest, Feniru, it's not yet fully shining forth from you, in other words, that glory of God, what we shall be. Well, you know that if, again, it's if and not when, again, it has nothing to do with the physical coming of Christ. He shall be manifested. If he shall be manifested, become visibly shining from you. 
We shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. Oh, so you'll see him, the people that do this, see him as he is. So if it's shining forth from you, you're going to be like him, and you're going to see him in the mirror as he is. You're not looking at a fake Jesus, a dead Jesus, a worthless Jesus, but a powerful Jesus. Manifestly, and this is not by faith, and not just by faith, in other words. So another word, epiphania, is very close in its meaning to phaniru. It's still a shining forth, but it's to shine forth from or upon. It's a little bit different. Second uh, Timothy 4 and 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not only to me, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. That's epiphania. Aha. Uh-huh. It's not talking about the coming of the Lord. It's talking about his shining forth from you. He's coming for all those who have loved his epiphania, the shining forth from you. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. So this is the proving ground. This is where the fruit is born. It's here that we are manifesting His glory, coming into the image of Jesus Christ, the Son, and manifesting His Sonship. Titus 2 and 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing, the epiphania, the shining forth from of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's right. Are you looking for the shining forth of the glory of the great God of our Savior and our Savior Jesus Christ? That's our hope. Hold fast to the Word of God. Find out what it says about you, right? Amen. All right, so God bless you and keep you. I just ran over just a little bit, but that's okay. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Father, please help us to seek this out. Help, uh, help us to listen to this again and understand what you have done, the great thing that you've done, and what you want to do here on earth through us. Jesus will be everywhere. He will be doing the mighty works of God everywhere shortly. Amen. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. Bless you in Jesus' name. Let's go to the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for opening our eyes to what your word has for us, Lord. Because your word is precious to us, Lord. It's important. And we want to know what it is to partake of the unleavened bread. And our hope is in you, Lord. Lord, our faith is in you that you're going to put our hearts both a desire to seek you out in your word and a desire to repent. As we read and study your word and and meditate on it, we want that renewed mind that you have for us, Lord. And I praise you. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. And, Lord, I ask for your anointing today to get this word out. And I thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. 
Well, today I want to talk to you about the open door. Glory to God. Let's start out with Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and none shall shut, and he that, excuse me, and that shutteth, and none openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee a door opened, which none can shut. The Lord sets before us, folks, these wonderful doors of opportunities, blessings, and provision. And what's more, folks, they're not closed doors. They're wide open doors of God's divine blessings open to us. And as we walk through the Lord's open doors, we receive the divine riches that he has prepared for us because of our inheritance in Christ. During the Apostle John's exile on the Isle of Patmos, the Lord first gave him the revelation as Jesus as the one who opens the doors. In fact, the entire book of Revelation is the vision and revelation of Jesus Christ and was written when Jesus appeared to John while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And during this time, the Lord also gave John messages for the seven churches that existed in Asia Minor at that time. In Revelation 3 and 8, Jesus told John that he was setting an open door before the Philadelphia church. And it said it was a door that no man could open or shut. However, the messages Jesus gave John for the churches also teach us a lesson. They contain messages from God to us. For example, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we notice something that Jesus repeated over and over again. He said this in many places. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, according to the Amplified Bible, here's what Jesus said. He who is able to hear, let him listen to and heed what the Holy Spirit says to the assemblies. That's the churches. All right. I believe that includes us today. I believe that includes everybody that's living today. We too need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church because we're the church. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the Holy One and the True One. Well, that's a good message. What is the message for the body of Christ today? Well, it's found in Revelation 3, 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking in these verses. We know Jesus is the one speaking because verse 7 says, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that openeth. Jesus is the one who qualifies as the holy one and the true one. And by saying this, Jesus has given us a description of himself. Listen to it. He's revealing his character to us. Well, what's his character? He says Jesus is holy and true. Those qualities are aspects of Jesus' character. 
Therefore, the first thing Jesus revealed about his character in Revelation 3 and 7 is that he is holy and true. You see, Jesus could say he's holy because no fault was found in him by God, by man, or by the devil. And we're going to see why Jesus could say of himself that he is true. You remember that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And as he came straightway up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended upon him in bodily shape and form like a dove. And then this voice from heaven spoke and said, Thou art my beloved Son in thee. I am well pleased. Luke 3.22 So therefore God found no fault in him. In fact, God the Father said he was well pleased with Jesus. And then God also spoke from heaven on another occasion about Jesus. You remember when Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went up to the Mount of Transfiguration? The Bible says that the cloud of God's glory overshadowed them. Matthew 17 and 5. It says this, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Jesus pleased God because he was and is the Holy One. In other words, God found no fault in him. And, and, you know, uh, men tried to find fault in Jesus, but they couldn't find any sin in him. Men even examined Jesus before the course of men. They tried to find fault in him and trap him in his word. But they couldn't find any error in him because his character is pure, holy, and true. In fact, throughout his ministry, men brought Jesus before human courts of public opinion and judgment. For example, the Word of God tells us that the Pharisees thought that they could challenge Jesus and that he would say something that would get him in trouble with the Roman government. The Pharisees asked him, he said, we want to ask you a question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, that's a question some people ask even today, isn't it? People will get in trouble even in our day if they don't pay their taxes. The Pharisees thought they would catch Jesus in an error. Because if he said, yes, you must pay taxes to Caesar, then he'd be in trouble with the religious folks. But if he said, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar then he'd be in trouble with the government. But Jesus was smarter than folks. <laughs> Jesus answered in such a way that no fault could be found in him by anyone. Mark 12, 13 through 17 says this, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians that they might catch him in talk. And when they were come, they say unto him, Teacher, we know that thou art true and carest not for anyone, for thou regardest not the person of men, but of a true, teachest the way of God. Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? 
Verse 15, shall we give or shall we not give? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why make ye trial of me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. And they brought it, and he said unto them, Who is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus said unto them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And they marveled greatly at him. Because, you see, even the Pharisees, the strictest religious sect of that day, could find no fault in Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, it says, in chapter 22 and verse 22, When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Jesus, the Holy One, could not be found in error. Then the Sadducees had their try at him. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead, nor did they believe in angels or spirits. So they came to ask Jesus a question concerning Jewish law, hoping to catch him in an error. Mark twelve eighteen through 27 says this, And there came unto him Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave a wife behind him and leave no child, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, leaving no seed behind him, and the third likewise, and the seven left no seed. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. Jesus said unto him, It is not for this cause that you err. Is it not for this cause that you err, that you know not the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels in heaven. But as touching the dead that they are raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the place concerning the bush how God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You do greatly err. Jesus answered with such wisdom and authority that the Sadducees could find no fault in him either. The officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees also wanted to question Jesus and try to trap him in his words. But how many of you know that they couldn't do it either? No wonder they came back and reported this. They said, never man spake like this man in John 7, 45 and 46. Well, why did they do that? Because Jesus is the Holy One. He is the true one, and there is no fault or flaw in his character whatsoever. And on another occasion, the religious authorities of that day tried to trap Jesus by demanding on what authority he performed his miracles. Mark eleven twenty-seven and 30 through 30 says this, And they come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they said unto him, By what authority 
doest thou these things? Or who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus said unto them, Well, I'm going to ask you a question. And answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, no matter what the religious leaders of that day tried to do to trap Jesus, they couldn't catch him in his words because he's the Holy One. There was no fault that could be found in him by man because his character was and is flawless. Even when Jesus stood before a human tribunal, tribunal to be crucified, man could find no charge against him. Even Judas, his accuser, could find no fault in him. Jesus said this. He said, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Matthew 27 and 4. And Pilate, he asked the crowd of Jesus' accusers, What evil hath he done? Matthew 27 23. Pilate had no accusation to bring against Jesus because Jesus had done nothing worthy of death. Matthew 27 24 says, So when Pilate saw that he prevailed nothing, but rather that a tumult was arising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. See you to it. In front of every single human tribunal, no fault was found in Jesus by man because his character stood the test of man because of his holiness and he was true. The devil tried to find fault in Jesus too. Look in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Matthew 4 3. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4 and 4. Here was Satan trying to tempt Jesus and trap him in his words, but Jesus rebuked him with the word of God, saying, It is written, Satan. Then Satan took Jesus to the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down, because God will save you. Satan even quoted the scriptures to try to trap Jesus with the word. Matthew 4 and 6. And saith unto him, If thou art the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and on their hands they shall bear thee up, lest happily thou dash thy foot against the stone. You know, Satan can quote scripture when it suits his purpose to do so. But Jesus, he rightly divided the word and told him, he said, Again it is written, Satan, Thou shalt not make trial of the Lord thy God. And therefore Satan could not find any fault in Jesus. Then what happened? Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time. And Satan told Jesus if he would fall down and worship him, he would give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world with all their glory. And what Jesus told him, he said, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4 and 10. So here we got Satan couldn't trick Jesus with any of these temptations. Jesus stood steadfast by declaring what the word said. Jesus whipped Satan with the word of God. Jesus' character stood the test of temptations and trials because he is the holy and true one. Satan couldn't find any fault in Jesus. There was no fault that was found in Jesus by God, by man, or by the devil because Jesus' character is holy and true. You see, Jesus could also say of himself in Revelation 3 and 7 that he is the true one because no flaw was found in his character. We know that Jesus' character is faithful and true because that's one of his names in eternity. Revelation 19 and 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he, sat there, he that sat thereon was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Then we got it uh, also in the book of Revelation. Jesus himself revealed something else about his character. He, re he revealed that he is the faithful and true witness. Revelation 3 and 14. And through the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Well, why could the Bible say that Jesus is the faithful and true witness? Because Jesus faithfully represented the Father. Remember what Jesus said? He said, He that has seen me has seen the Father in John 14 and 9. In fact, in his earthly walk, Jesus' testimony about the Father God was so faithful and true that you could look at Jesus and see what God looked like. You could see what he's like. You could see the Father's character. You could see the Father's nature in Jesus. Acts 10.38 says this, Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. We know that Jesus is a true witness because he said, For I am come down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 6.38 Now the definition of that word true is honest, steadfast, honorable, just, right, and faithful. Jesus was honest, steadfast, honorable, just, right, and faithful to carry out the Father's will on the earth. Jesus said, The words that I say unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father abiding in me. John 14 and 10. Jesus was a faithful and a true witness of the Father in every situation. John 12, 49 and 50. For I speak not from myself, but the Father that sent me. He hath given me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life eternal. 
And the things therefore which I speak, even as the Father has said unto me, so I speak. Jesus was faithful and true to speak only what he heard from the Father. He faithfully represented the Heavenly Father, even in his words. And a lot of times, people talk about political people. And they talk about television personalities who stand at the forefront in in, uh, different areas of our culture. The question is, and it's often asked, what, just what is that person really like, that politician or that actor or that actress? For example, sometimes interviewers will ask about those who are running for president or some other public office. They'll ask the question, well, wonder what he's really like. You can get one image of the candidate in public, but what they really want to know is if that person what he's really like all the time. And sometimes folks may wonder and ask the question, what is God really like? Well, if you really want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. Acts 10, 38. If you want to hear God talking, listen to Jesus. If you want to see God at work, look at Jesus. Because Jesus faithfully represented the Father God, in every way to the people. Isaiah 22 or 22, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, and he, he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut. Well, Jesus is the authorized one. He's the one who has the key of David. In the scriptures, Keys are often used as symbols of power and authority. Giving keys to a person signifies that you are entrusting him with an important charge. God has entrusted him that is faithful and true. You know, God made a covenant with David, promising that a descendant of David's would come and always sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That was literally fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his ascension on high to sit at the Father's right hand, Hebrews 1 and 3. Jeremiah 33, 17 and 20 and 21 says this, For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, if you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, so that there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign upon his throne. God was referring to Jesus when he said that. Jesus was not born of a natural seed, even though Joseph, Jesus' earthly father was of the house and lineage of David. The Bible says the power of the Most High overshadowed Mary, Luke one thirty five. Therefore, Jesus was born of supernatural seed. Supernaturally, Jesus was of the seed and lineage 
of David. Luke 1, 30-33 And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You see, because David ruled over Israel in the natural, Second Samuel 5 and 5, but it was prophesied that the Christ would come from the house of David and he would rule over his people supernaturally. He would sit on the throne of David and reign forever. Therefore, the covenant God made with David, as recorded in the Old Testament, was fulfilled in Jesus. And this was later confirmed in the New Testament when Zechariah prophesied about the Savior who would come from the house of David. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and wrought redemption for his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's talking about Jesus Christ, who would be given the key of David. And according to one commentator, the key of David implies the royal power and authority of Davidic dynasty or kingdom. In the New Testament, this power is lodged in the risen Christ. And we see in the scriptures that Jesus is the one who was given royal power and authority. In other words, Jesus Christ was to ultimately carry on and fulfill the reign of the house of David supernaturally as the Messiah and Lord. Then on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and spoke to the 120 believers who were gathered in the upper room that day. He confirmed the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who came to sit on the throne of David to rule his people. Acts 2.28 through uh, 2.29 through 30 and 30 and 34 through 36. It says, Brethren, I may say unto you freely of the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us unto this day. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins he was set one upon his throne. Acts 2, 34 and 36, through 36. For David ascended not into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly, that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And according to different Bible commentaries in ancient eastern countries, keys were sometimes carried over their shoulder as a symbol of power and authority. And this is fulfilled in Jesus' eternal reign because the Old Testament scriptures predicted that one day, all government and authority would be under the Messiah's dominion. In other words, the government shall be upon his shoulders. 
Isaiah 9 and 6 says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Therefore, talking about Jesus' eternal reign, the key of the house of David symbolizes Jesus' authority and power to sustain the government on his shoulders. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Then cometh the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power. And our text, text scripture, Revelation 3, 7, says that Jesus was given the key of David, indicating that all authority was given to him. That's what the Bible means when it says the government shall be upon his shoulder. As the Christ and Lord, Jesus literally brought to pass Old Testament prophecy to rule and reign forever and ever, which fulfilled the Davidic covenant. Jesus was given the key of David to spiritually sit on David's throne and rule and reign forever over his people Israel. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Luke 1, 32-33. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Well, now you can see why Jesus is the one who has the authority and the ability to open and shut doors. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. What Jesus opens, no man can shut. Jesus also has the authority to shut doors. And what he shuts, no man can open. The key of David means that Jesus has authority no man possesses. Isaiah also prophesied about Jesus' authority to open and close doors. And notice that Isaiah also uses the phrase, the key of David, in connection with Jesus' authority. And it's interesting that Isaiah also prophesied that God would lay the key of David on Jesus' shoulder. And we're talking about Jesus' reign here. Isaiah 22 and 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. The key of the house of David can also be understood as the power and authority to give access to God and to eternal life. We know that Jesus is the authorized one giving us access to God and to eternal life because the scripture says, 1 Timothy 2 and 5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, himself man, Christ Jesus. And also Jesus himself said, I have the keys of hell and death. Ain't no man has authority over hell and death. Revelation 1 and 18, And the living one... 
And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Glory to God. Jesus went down to the dark regions of the domain of death and led captivity captive, it says in Ephesians 4, 8, and 9. He took the keys of hell and death away from Satan and arose on that glad resurrection morning long ago. He had the victory over death, hell, and the grave. Glory to God. When Jesus rose from the dead, he went to tell his disciples and he gave them the revelation that he is the authorized one because all power in heaven and earth was given unto him and the government is upon his shoulders. He alone has the key of David. Matthew 28 9 through 10 and 16 through 18. And behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Fear not, go tell my brethren that they depart unto Galilee, and there shall they see me. Then verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus told his disciples that all power had been given unto him in heaven and in earth. Well, how could all power be given to Jesus? Because he's the Holy One. He's the true one. He is the faithful and the true witness. He is the authorized one, possessing the key of David, the key of power and authority forever. He is authorized to open and close doors. And Jesus has the keys of death and hell. Revelation 1 and 18. Revelation 5, 1 through 5 says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back, clothed, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a great voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no one in the heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look thereon. And I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look thereon. And then one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath overcome to open the book and the seven seals thereof. Glory to God. Jesus is the only one worthy to open the book sealed with seven seals. And well, why is that? Because he's the Holy One. He's the true one. He's the faithful and true witness. He is the authorized one. He holds the key of David and the keys of death and hell. Glory to God. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, actually, our text scripture in Revelation chapter 3 and 7 reveals two things to us. Jesus' character and Jesus' work. We've already seen his character. 
But in this passage, we also see something concerning the work that the Holy One and the True One does. He says in Revelation 3 and 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shuts, and shuts, and no man opens, and none opens. Jesus' work is twofold in nature. He opens and he shuts doors. He said about himself, I am he that opens and no man shuts. I am he that shuts and no man opens. Opening and shutting doors is symbolic of Jesus' authority. The symbol of the key is a picture of his authority. Therefore, one aspect of Jesus' work is to open and to shut doors. Actually, in the Gospels, Jesus called himself the door. He said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and shall find pasture. John 10 and 9. So, we see that Jesus is the door to salvation. Jesus is the open door to all who will believe and receive him. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, and in none other is there salvation, for neither is there any other name under heaven that is given among men wherein we must be saved. Well, that's enough to shout about right there, glory to God. Then in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8, Jesus went on to say, Behold, I have set before thee an open door. Everybody is invited to enter through the open door of salvation. Jesus is not shutting his doors of blessings on his people. His doors of blessings are open to all. They're wide open, praise God. And all may enter in through those open doors. Jesus is also the closer of doors. There are some doors that will eventually close if people refuse to accept Jesus and his open doors of blessings. Can you shut doors open that Jesus opens? Well, it's important to know that when Jesus opens a door for you, no man can shut it. Your mama can't shut it. Your daddy can't shut it. Your preacher pastor can't shut a door that Jesus opens for you. Actually, you're the only one who can, in effect, shut the doors of God's blessings on your life. How's that? It's by a lack of understanding most of the time or by disobedience. You see, there is a Godward side and a manward side to everything. We receive from God. Many times folks want to leave it all up to God. They say, whatever I need, I know the Lord's going to send it. If I need healing, he'll send that. Whatever it is, God will just send it. Like it's just going to fall from heaven without you doing anything. Well, that sounds good and that sounds religious. But really putting it in the context of what Jesus said, that ain't true. Why? Because when it comes to the provisions of God, Jesus has already set before us an open door. Ephesians 1 and 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In other words, 
the open door of God's blessings is already there for us to enter into because God provided us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Well, what are some of Jesus' open doors to blessing, to God's blessing? Well, that's the open door of salvation to take, for example. The door of service and opportunity. The door of divine healing. The door of utterance. And the door of financial blessing. Then Jesus also opens for us the door of heaven. Since Jesus has opened wide his doors of blessings for us, then the responsibility is ours, whether or not we ever enter through those open doors. Throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament right on through to the last page of the New Testament, you're going to find again and again where the Word of God puts the responsibility for receiving the blessings of God upon each individual person. For example, God said, Choose you this day whom you will serve in Joshua 24 and 15. He leaves the choice up to us. He didn't say, I'm going to choose for whom you must serve. No. He said, You choose from whom you will serve. Then in the book of Revelation, the word of God said, The spirit and the bride say, Come. And he that heareth, let him say, Come. He that will, let him take the water of life freely. Now, I want you to notice it says, he that will. That means in each individual person has to make the choice for himself to enter through God's doors of blessing. The blessings of God and everything else God wants you to have are not going to automatically fall on you like ripe cherries off a tree. Ain't going to happen. No, there's some things that you'll have to do to receive God's blessings and provisions. You have a part to play in receiving from God. Jesus did his part because he's already opened those doors of blessing. And since Jesus has set before you open doors that no man can shut, it's up to you to walk through them. And I don't know about you, but I like that word open. I don't like them closed or shut, but I like them open. And I thank God for the doors of blessings and provision that Jesus has already opened and set before. Wouldn't it be a pity to come to the end of life's journey never having enjoyed God's promises or provisions even though they were already prepared for each and every one of us. Therefore, we need to see what the Bible says about each door so we can know if we are walking through the doors that Jesus has freely opened for us. Jesus has opened the door of salvation to every person. Thank God Jesus has opened that door of salvation that no one can shut unless the person himself refuses to walk through that open door by not receiving Jesus Christ as his Savior. Well, what does it mean that Jesus is the door to salvation? Remember that Jesus said, I am the door, and by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. John 10 and 9. Then the Bible says in Hebrews 10 and 20, By the way which he, that's Jesus, dedicated for us a new and living way through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. In other words, by shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary, 
Jesus opened the door of salvation to everybody who would ever live on this earth. You see, when Jesus died, shed his blood for the remission of our sins, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, it was rent in two. That partition separated man from the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt under the old covenant. Hebrews 10, 19, and 20. This is the Amplified Version. Therefore, brethren, since we have all full freedom and confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies by the power and virtue in the blood of Jesus, by this fresh, new, and living way, which he initiated and dedicated and opened for us through the separating curtain, that's the veil of the Holy of Holies, that is through his flesh. Now, once that partition was rent by the sacrifice of Jesus' own body on the cross of Calvary, the presence of God was no longer contained in a man-made tabernacle. And by the sacrificing of Jesus, that presence of God came to dwell in every person who would receive Jesus Christ as his Savior. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That's why Jesus himself is the door of salvation. Because he made the way for all people to be saved by his sacrificing himself. And Jesus called himself the door. In fact, there's no other door through which we can receive salvation or eternal life unless you go through Jesus. Acts 4 and 12, and in none other is there salvation. For neither is there any other name under heaven that has given among men wherein we must be saved. In John chapter 10, we see that Jesus is both the door and the good shepherd. In verse 11, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep know his voice and follow him. Now I want to read John chapter 10 verses 1 through 11. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that endureth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in the, by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, that's the shepherd, the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. And when he put forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life 
for the sheep. And because Jesus is the good shepherd, the porter opens the door to him. Jesus, the door to salvation, protects the sheep so that no thief or robber can come through him to get into the sheepfold. Therefore, Jesus is both the door of salvation and the good shepherd who protects his sheep. So, you see, Jesus, the door of salvation, has already made a way for the redemption of every person who would ever live on this earth. But each person must walk through that door of salvation for himself. God puts the responsibility on each person whether or not he will receive Jesus Christ as his Savior. When we talk about the door of salvation, we're talking about Jesus providing us with the new birth and the transmission of sin. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, we can receive eternal life and become new creatures in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. But friend, there's more involved in salvation than just the new birth and the remission of sin. That's part of it, but that ain't the whole aspect of it. You see, much more than the new birth is implied in this word salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, there's a note in the margin that points out that the Hebrew and Greek words for salvation imply not only the idea of forgiveness of sin, but also of healing and health. The word salvation actually means healing, health, safety, deliverance, soundness, and wholeness. Whosoever will may come through this door of salvation. Each individual person must choose for himself whether he will enter into the blessing and benefits that salvation produces for him. The benefits of salvation include healing. They include health. Safety, deliverance, soundness, and wholeness. Revelation 22 and 17 says this, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And he that heareth, let him say, Come. And he that is of thirst, let him come. He that will, let him take the water of life freely. Folks, that door is still open. But one of these days, it's going to be shut, and then it's going to be too late. <coughs> Excuse me. You are the one who decides if you will ever walk through the door of salvation. You alone decide where you're going to spend eternity, in heaven or in hell. Second Corinthians 6 and 2 said, For he saith, At an acceptable time I hearken unto thee, and in a day of salvation did I succor thee. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so it is, folks. We're at the end of this uh, uh, this time. We're at the end of life as, as, as we know it in the next little bit. And we ask and we pray that you just come strongly to the Lord 
And I praise you and I thank you for it, Lord, for drawing and granting repentance to all of those out there that want you, Lord. And I praise you and thank you that it's going to be an awesome time in the days ahead with revival on its way because the door is open. God bless you, folks. I'm out of time. We'll see you next time. God willing. Can quench my thirsting soul. Pure as water made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow. Oh, Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. Mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night, what will be my guiding light? The shining rays of red and white, Jesus, I trust. Seated for all time I am yours and you are mine Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe For your mercy stands and your word is true Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, my Lord Jesus. Jesus, I trust in